Grace and peace are yours in Christ Jesus, who makes you rich by becoming poor, rich in grace, rich in his treasures, brothers and sisters. In his book, God So Loved He Gave, Justin Borger, a pastor in Tennessee, tells the story of a homeless woman that he uh, had an encounter with, and he helped with some necessary items and toiletries and a little bit of food. Um, She really didn't become involved with his church immediately, but after a tragic event in her life, living underneath a bridge in downtown Chattanooga, Tennessee, she was raped. She called Justin, and he came and picked her up, took her to the hospital, and helped her get medical attention. After that, she was a regular in church, and she got to know the membership. The membership got to know her, and the church gave her vouchers for food and other necessary items. The problem was, every time that she received these vouchers, she gave them away. You, know, you see, she said, living underneath a bridge, you live with other needy people, and to take a gift and not to share it with other people is wrong. And Justin would say to her, hey, Tammy, we're giving this gift for you, for you to get food, not to other people. And she came back once and she said, why can't I give too? And then he writes, and this is the interesting part, his commentary, Borger writes, I found myself taken aback. Why shouldn't Tammy be allowed to give some of what she received? Wasn't that exactly what I was doing? I paused for a moment. But then I gave her this very pragmatic answer, we're giving it to you, not everyone you meet. Yet I recognized a deeper problem, to only receive and never give back is to be belittled, to be humiliated. Over time, I had begun to think of Tammy as a kind of pet project in which I was always the giver and she was always the recipient. But the good news is that God not only made us to be recipients of grace, but also participants in the movement of his generosity. Do you get what he's saying there? What he's saying and what Tammy's saying is exactly what God is calling us to do in the seventh commandment. Uh, In our church body, we number number seven as this one, you shall not steal. And in this commandment, we have a command not to take things that aren't ours, but there's something that goes deeper when you look into the Bible about how we treat the possessions that we're given. And when I speak about possessions, I'm talking about everything that you have, the clothes on your back, the career that you have, the car in the driveway, the food in the refrigerator, the 401k, and whatever it is that you obtain and you call your own. Three things that we learn from Scripture about our possessions is this. Number one, our possessions are given to us by God, and they are a a gift, and He is the source. From the very beginning, from day six of creation, God made man and made woman. He had made this wonderful world. He had put riches in the world. He had put trees and mountains and shrubs and animals and birds and fish. And then He says this. He says, I want you, as the crown of my creation, to be an owner, to take part in this creation by being a steward of these awesome things that I created. And I want you to take care of them. And you and I have a responsibility as stewards or as managers to take care of and to um, manage the things that God has given us, including everything that I just mentioned in your possessions. In other words, 
God blesses people with possessions and the responsibility that comes with caring for them. For Adam and Eve, it was all of this creation and a garden to take care of and animals and birds and fish. And it's, a, it's kind of interesting. He says, you're going to enjoy all of this and you're going to take care of it and you're going to be completely content with what I give you. Does that mean that he gave them everything? No. Actually, he didn't, did he? What didn't he give them? He says, I'm not going to give you this tree over here. I want you to withhold from taking from this tree. And they were perfectly happy and perfectly content at the beginning before they ate from that tree. And every time they didn't steal from that tree, they were worshiping God. That's the first thing. Everything in your possession is given to you, although you might not have everything, and you can be perfectly content with that because God is the source. Number two, trust. This is where it breaks down. You know where the source comes from, but do you trust that he's given you everything that you need? This is getting to the heart of the commandment. Um, In the passage in front of you from uh, Leviticus, there's a trust issue that's going on that God says when you're unfaithful, with the things that I give you, or when you steal from another person, or when you cheat from another person, it's not just stealing and it's not just cheating between you and them. Who are you actually robbing? You're actually breaking confidence with God. Because to bring dishonor or deceit about possessions is an assault on the relationship with God. The God who said, no, I gave your neighbor that car, or I gave your neighbor that money, I didn't give you that money so that when you go and take something that isn't yours, it's much, much deeper, as we're going to find out in the sermon, in a breach of confidence. So when Adam and Eve go to the tree and they take something that isn't theirs, it's not just stealing. It's actually dishonoring God and saying, God, I don't trust you with what you've given me and I want more. Okay, and number three, the third, I'm going to call it pillar about possessions is this, cause. In other words, what does God want me to do? What cause is he calling me to use my possessions for? And this is going to get down into the story of 2 Corinthians 8 at the end of the sermon and the cause that Paul calls the the Corinthians to. When you discover that your giver is good, when you discover that the source is perfect and he's given you everything you need, then your mind is set on grace and you're going to see a whole new world open up in front of you. That instead of being tight-fisted, and jealous, and wanting something that isn't yours, you're going to see the world differently like somebody that lives underneath a bridge, like a Tammy that says, how can I not care for my family? How can I not give towards the mission of the church? How can I not help the poor? Because grace is what's going to change it because it restores a relationship in that trust area, number two, so that we're on board with the cause. That's, that's the path that we're going to go down today. The three things are this. The poor give more. Number one, see the source. Number two, trust the giver. And number three, love the cause. Okay? The first one is see the source. For this one, I want to start with a little bit of an illustration. You're really going to have to wrap your minds around this one. Um, Imagine for a moment that you have an awesome benefit or an awesome charity that you are really into. Maybe you're into one right now and you love giving to this charity or this thing uh, because you believe in it. It's something personal to you. Uh, Let's say here, let's, let's imagine, are there any pet people out there, any animal people out there today? Let's imagine that you are going to change the world for Austin by building a state of the art pet shelter that's going to take care of all of the kittens and all of the puppies. 
that are abandoned, that are abused, that, uh, that don't have a home. It's going to have the best veterinarians. It's going to have the best technology. You start, you know, you're one of the big movers behind it. There's maybe a couple others, but you're going to start this thing up. You go to everybody at your work. You go to everybody at your family. You try crowdfunding it. You're getting some support, but nowhere close to where you need to get to open up this shelter that's going to change so many animals' lives. All of a sudden, one day, you get a phone call. It's Mark Zuckerberg, okay? He's, in this story, it's really him. It's not, a, it's not a scam. It's really Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook. He has heard about how you're going to save all of the kittens and all of the dogs and all the animals in Austin, and he loves the idea. He's an animal person, too, and he says, I love it, Brittany, that you're going to save all of the animals. I'm totally on board. Will you come out to wherever Facebook headquarters is? probably... California somewhere, I'm imagining. I'm going to fly you out to California, Brittany, and then you're, we're going to sit down, and you're going to tell me all about it, and I'm going to give you a check. I'm going to write you a check. And you say, whoa, that's awesome. I didn't even know that Mark Zuckerberg had a checkbook. Who, who uses those anymore? Anyways, he flies you out there, and you get onto a limo, and he drives you to his office, and you wait for the secretary. The secretary lets you in, and sure enough, you get to meet Mark Zuckerberg. He's just enthralled, loves, loves seeing you, loves your mission. Tells, you tell him all about it. And then comes the time that he says, I am ready to give. So he pulls out his checkbook. He writes, and you wait with bated breath. This is going to change. How many shelters are you going to open? He tears it out, slides it across the table. Eyes as big as saucers. You take a look at the check. $10. Really? Mr. Zuckerberg, thank you for giving. But everything you just told me and everything you're worth, do you think you could do it for the puppies? Could you do it a little bit more? Not giving out of your riches, but could you give according to your riches? You see, when it comes to our relationship with God and the source, very often we we imagine God as being this rich CEO that only gives us the scraps and gives us the $10 check when he is the ruler of the universe. But in Philippians, it says this, that God has blessed you not out of his riches, but according to his riches in Christ Jesus. That means that he's not a withholding or a tight-fisted God. To understand why God hates stealing is to understand how much he loves what? Giving. When he gives everything to us, when he opens up his hand, the psalmist says, and satisfies the desires of every living thing, that means he's not withholding anything from you. And you might not have everything that somebody else has, but you have his promise that he has given you what you need. I don't have to tell 21st century America that you're rich. You are blessed no matter where you are on the economic scale in America. And I understand there are people that struggle for food and for shelter. I do. But generally speaking, we live in a time that some commentators say that even the average American is richer than King Solomon when it comes to amenities and net worth overall. It's not a matter of do you have food. It's a matter of how many refrigerators do you have. It's not a matter of do you have shelter. It's a matter of how many properties do you have. He opens the hand and satisfies the desires, and then on top of that, he gives and gives and gives again. 
To understand the source means to understand that it all comes from God. And you might say, I built this business by myself. I, I pushed my career. He was the one that gave you the mind. He was the one that gave you the hands. He's the one that gives you everything, the materials that you need to make wealth, to get possessions. Number two, trust the giver. Again, this is where it breaks down because we can understand the source But very often, the trust issue with the giver is what causes us to go out and desire things that aren't our own because we can't trust that he's given us what we think that we need. The pastors are the illustration for this one. In the time of Malachi, they were the ones stealing from God. And they weren't robbing a bank and they weren't doing identity theft or anything like that or some kind of big stealing. They did sly stealing. What they were doing was the pastors were called to make sacrifices the priests were with animals, but instead of giving the best sacrifices with the best animals, they were taking the lame animals, they were taking the animals with defects in their eyes, the blind animals. And Malachi speaks to them about stealing. When you offer blind animals for sacrifices, is that not wrong? When you are sacrificing lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering that to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? In other words, you think that this would fly with the federal government if you tried doing this with your taxes and not giving them everything? No, he's using the arguments from the lesser to the greater. God sees everything, and he sees what you're giving, and he sees that there's a matter of the heart. Even though you still technically have an animal on the altar, there's something going on right here that you need to cut a corner, that you need to take something that isn't yours dedicated to the Lord kind of like we heard in the story of Achan and cheat God out of that stealing is exactly that it's getting ahead by leaving another behind it can be stealing by taking something out of your neighbor's garage or it can be stealing by taking the time from your employer from your school from, your, from the people in your life that you owe that time to. It was, um, it was a report a couple of years ago by the Barna Group, a Christian research group, within the last couple of years that uh, they took a poll of the temptations that generally affect believers, and they, they said there's a bunch of old temptations. I'm going to call them the classic temptations, But then they discovered that recently some of the biggest temptations that we encounter are temptations having to do with the allocation of our time. It's that sly way that the the pastors were cheating God, but it's also that way that we are recognizing now that we can be cheating even the people that we work for, our employers. Um, One of the one of the biggest new temptations coming out is that spending too much time on social media at 44% is a temptation. And guilty as charged, this is one that affects us directly. But if you go down further into the report, you see that there's a temptation that is especially true for Western culture. You see that procrastinating at 60%, and I'm going to skip down to being lazy and not working hard with what I should do falls at 41% as a new temptation that's affecting us. It was easy for the pastors to sneak in the cattle on the side that were bad and defected, 
Is your work defected? It's a temptation. And ironically, as the richest nation in the world, 60% are worrying. There's a trust issue here. There's a source issue here. I'm not showing you this just to harp on the sin, but I'm showing you this that it's a heart issue with God. That we need to cut corners, or we need to steal, or we need to get ahead. And it's so tempting in the capitalistic society that we live in that that's the right thing to do. But God says when you do that, you're breaking trust with me. We can't fix the thief within us on our own. And I can't do it without grace. But that's why God gave us his son. When Jesus came, he came with open hands. And instead of cheating people, he helped them. When they were hungry, he fed them. And when they were poor, he spoke about the kingdom of God that surpasses all their understandings. And he promised that kingdom. And the poorest of the poor were the ones that it resonated with the most, the people living underneath the bridge. When you and I realize that we have cheated God, we've cheated maybe our neighbor, we've stolen, we've gotten ahead at their expense, we can't help but find ourselves underneath the bridge too. And it's only at that point that you, like Tammy, can begin to appreciate the grace that's given you. Whereas it, it, it's stealing to, to, to put yourself ahead of another person, the beautiful thing about grace is grace is the exact opposite. Grace is putting yourself behind to allow another person to go ahead. And then when Paul writes this about grace, when grace enter in, enters in, 2 Corinthians 8-9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Now you get a taste of keeping the seventh commandment is all about. It's not about getting everything you can, and it's not a cash grab. It's about a God that put himself in our place and put himself behind so that we can be forgiven and that that thief, this thief, can have a heart change, kind of like the most famous thief in the New Testament. Do you remember his name? Little guy? Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus cheated people out of money, his own people. And then he would, he, he would accumulate wealth, and then he would leave the poor people to be even more poor. <laughs> and it wasn't until when, when he was watching Jesus, listening to Grace talk, Grace called him out of a tree, and Grace said to him, I want to go to your house. And when he experienced Grace... It changed his life forever because now instead of seeing a cash grab man that wants to maybe swindle him out of money, he saw a Savior that had his hands wide open and said, no, you're forgiven for free. And it doesn't cost anything, but it's his precious blood, an expensive gift given to Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus left that meeting with grace, his Savior Jesus, open hands. And what did he say? From this day forward, I'm going to give back Four times to everybody that I cheated, I'm going to give back half of everything that I have. Grace turns a thieving heart into a generous heart. Grace went to the cross and opened up his hands and satisfied the desires of every living thing by letting thieves and murderers put nails through his hands because you have a God with open hands. 
And that same God that died for your sin and took it all away, the stealing, the thievery, the cutting the corners at work, was the same God who came to life again three days later and went to a doubter, opened up his hands and said, stop doubting and believe. Grace is yours. That leads us to number three, the cause. Zacchaeus was on cause. After he was shown grace, he said, I can't help but I'm going to live out grace now. I'm going to give back checks to people. And when these checks arrived in the mail uh, to these people, repaying people, they must have thought, Zacchaeus lost his mind. No, Zacchaeus found grace. Zacchaeus now has open hands and he doesn't have fear of losing possessions. He doesn't have tight fists anymore, but he's living out the grace that God has given him. Well, the same thing is true as what happened in the early Christian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul, a former murderer, a, thiever, a thief of homes and uh, of lives and the worst of sinners he calls himself. Paul experiences grace in Jesus, experiences the open hands, and that changes his mind about how he treats other people's and their possessions as well too. Now instead of being a taker, it turns him into a giver. It turns his desires outward like he's living underneath a bridge to help other people because Jesus is in his life. So when in late 40 AD, Paul is living in around Jerusalem and he sees a famine. A terrible famine is ravaging the land and nobody can grow crops, no men can get jobs, women and children went days without water and food. There was a tremendous uh, economic downturn at at the church and in Jerusalem at the time. People needed. And so Paul said, you know what? This isn't right. I want to do something about it because Jesus is in my life. And so he and Barnabas, his traveling companion, went all the way across um, Asia Minor and Greece and Turkey and they talked about the gospel and they talked about the cause to help and be a friend to their neighbor in every bodily way. And when they did that, the first church to respond was the Corinthian church, a church very much like modern-day North America. They were richer than anybody else. They had more talents. They had more wealth. They responded and they said, we want to give to that. We can help. And so Paul says, that's great. I'm going to come and I'm going to collect an offering. What happened, though, was between, between the time that they committed to the Jerusalem cause, I'll, cause it, I'll call it, and the time that Paul writes 2 Corinthians is their giving had tapered off almost all the way. False teachers had come into the congregation and said that the gospel wasn't really what it was, and the giving had stopped. Paul sent Titus, his companion, to reaffirm the gospel in their hearts, build that trust up again. Then he writes this letter to them, and for the first seven chapters, he's concerned with their heart. He's concerned with the trust issue and the source issue, and finally he gets to chapter eight, and he says, look at this cause. God has called you to use all of your gifts and all of your possessions your money, to help with the Jerusalem cause. He says, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Macedonian churches were the churches in northern Greece. They were the poorest of the churches. Churches like Thessaloniki, uh, Berea, and Philippi. Those churches didn't have much. But yet grace is working in their life so that they give towards this cause. They believe in the cause. In the midst of a very severe trial the Jerusalem cause, the famine, there, the Macedonians, overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. There's this overflowingness in their giving because to love God's cause is to let his grace overflow into others. 
And note this, you might be saying to yourself, well, I can't do that right now because of my circumstances. He talks less about the money and he's talking more about what? The joy that's overflowing. Because it doesn't matter your poverty, it doesn't matter your richness. Regardless of income, status, or circumstances, God wants your heart back. He wants you in your cause to find joy in saying, like Zacchaeus, I want to give this because I know my Savior is real. Because I know my Savior's love is overflowing into my heart. That's why Paul holds up the poorest of the poor. Because they get it. They live underneath the bridge. He goes on. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And you might ask yourself, well, how can these people that have very little, how can they have the power to do that? Where do they get that from? They get it right from God himself. In Ephesians 3.20 it says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more, then we ask or imagine who is at work within us, within the Macedonians, within you and me. He's calling us with a cause to use our gifts, to use our possessions, to bless other people. There are five areas, generally speaking, that the Bible talks about that you are called, and I am called, to use our money now with grace in our hearts, overflowing in these areas. These five areas, number one, God calls us to care for our family. In 1 Timothy 5, it says this, that if you are a caregiver for your family, if you're a breadwinner for your family, you're called not to use all of that money for yourself, but you're called to take care of your family. And if you don't take care of your family, you actually are worse than an unbeliever, it says. What you're doing is you're participating with God and you're saying, God, you are the one that has given this to me. Now let my grace overflow into my family life. Let me provide for them shelter. Let me provide for them food. Let me give them clothes on their back and let me give them some sort of transportation so that they can go to school and go to work. That's God's cause for you if you have a family and if you have people in your care. What's God's cause for me when he gives me gifts and when he gives me money? Let the grace overflow into your family. Let it flow over into the poor and the disenfranchised. The disenfranchised, the book of James says, are the people that God is calling us to help. In fact, if we don't take care of our orphans, if we don't take care of our widows, the Bible's calling us back to that place of grace that says, look at God who who treats you like his own children. Now you can go and make disciples of all nations by having a backpack drive, by helping people in their uh, walk in life. A couple weeks from now, we're going to feed the community. Why? Because we're Christian. Because God calls us to let our grace overflow into their lives. Number three, the Bible calls us This one's real popular, isn't it? I just saw your faces smile. Yes, to support your government, whether you like it or whether you don't like it. That's a trust issue with God. He says, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and give unto God what is God's. Well, what did the Roman government ever do for Jesus who said that? (laughs) To pay your taxes, but also to pray for your government that gives you support, that gives you protection, that helps the needy. To give to your family, to give to the disenfranchised, to give to the government, to give to the mission of the gospel, number four. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a parable about somebody that steals. 
in the secular world. And this man is really a thief. He steals from his boss, but then he uses it to benefit himself down the road. And Jesus isn't endorsing stealing, but he's using that as an illustration. If people outside of the church are this wise with their money, then what about the people who are God's children, who recognize that it's a gift of God? What are we doing with our money? What are we doing with our wealth? What are we doing with our resources? This one's a pretty personal one for me and for this congregation, so I'm going to get pretty specific. When you give to your local congregation like Holy Word, when you give an offering, that money, that gift, that gift is used, over 10% of it, to bless the wider mission of the church and our fellowship across the world, to raise up future pastors and teachers, to do mission work and build wells in places in Africa through Christian Aid and Relief, And when you give to the local mission here, you're supporting the full-time gospel ministry of your called workers. I'm talking about your pastors, your staff ministers, and your staff that every week gets together, gives you a sermon, baptizes children, and goes and makes calls to reach the lost. When we as a congregation have our eye on the ball and we're all moving in the same direction, And we're all under the bridge, and we're all saying, what great things can we do? Can we invest in our children? And we talk about it all the time. We talk about investing in our children, whether it comes to education, whether it comes to politics, and whether it comes to social. Our children are our future, we say. When we talk about building a school, doesn't that excite you? Because these saplings are the future oaks of the church. Because the people, the little ones that we invest in today are going to be the future pastors and teachers and mommies and daddies and workers in the workplace. And we can participate in that grace. And if that doesn't put a smile on your face, I don't know what will, but God is saying, I'm letting you participate in this as we keep our eye on the ball, as we move it down the field and say we want this for our children and we want this for our community and we want to make an impact in this community. The gospel mission. And finally, go on vacation. God says, I'm giving you this, these things for you to enjoy too. And so it's okay to enjoy it. And it's okay to use it because the book of Ecclesiastes talks all about that. All these things that we have, they're all going to go away anyhow. So why don't you enjoy the world that he's given us? And when in any one of those areas our heart sinks or maybe we steal from God or we steal from our families or we steal from whatever it is that we've broken trust with, it's time again to go back and look at those hands. There's nothing that you've done to cheat God that he hasn't forgiven and he can't forgive. When he opens up his hands and says, trust me, I'm your giver, and I gave my life for you, now all of a sudden we're not even talking about dollars anymore, are we? Actually, this whole time we're talking about a relationship, and possessions have something to do with it. So in the end, put yourself in the feet, in the shoes of the Macedonians, in the shoes of the Tammies, in the shoes of your Savior, who, although he was rich, became poor, even poorer than you, so that you can recognize the source. You have a good God with open hands. You can trust the giver. He gave his life for you. 
and you can be on mission with his cause to bless your neighbor and help them in every bodily need. Amen.